Welcome to Homefront on Missouri Grassroots Radio. I'm Cynthia Davis, your host. As a writer, speaker, and former legislator, we discuss limiting government, fiscal responsibility, and fair taxation. I'm a mother of seven and a wife of one for over three decades, so I bring you my personal experience. And now it's time for Homefront with Cynthia Davis. And this is Homefront. I thank you for joining us tonight. It is another happy Tuesday night when we get a chance to delve into the deeper issues of life, the things that really matter, the things like talking to Lloyd Sloan, who's a constitutional expert. I thank you for being with me. I thank you, Lloyd. How are you doing tonight? I'm doing great, Cynthia. I want to thank you for having me on. And, yeah, we talk Constitution for sure. I don't know how much an expert I am. I do know I've known you for years. And I'm not sure Homefront describes you. I I think you're more of a frontline person. Personally, <laughs> you're in the trenches. Uh, whoever said that you were on a Homefront, eh, I'm not sure. But <laughs> well, thank you, boy. You've charged every gun, you know, and taken a lot of hills that I've seen. So. Well, thank you, Lloyd. That does mean a lot. We do have to charge. We're going to lose. And the point of Homefront is, in a war, there are many fronts, and we are fighting on a lot of areas right now we're seeing decay happen all over our country and among them we're seeing the bedrock of society crumble Um, the home is weaker than ever we do try to talk about how are we going to grow people bigger and shrink government smaller and everything we're watching is growing government bigger and as it's growing bigger the people the family and the civic institutions that were meant to be run by real people are going to make government big. I mean, what are we doing? What are we doing? What direction are we headed? I agree with you there, and I that is something that uh, you know, in that sense of home front, uh, that is definitely you, because you've been uh, concerned with family issues as, as long as I've known you, and uh, put that front and center. And I don't think those issues get front and center. The economy will tend to dwarf it out, even foreign policy. But in the long run, it, it may not matter, you know, whether or not we balanced our budgets as much as whether or not we destroyed our families in America. And if we have food on the table for dinner. I mean, we're looking at everything. I, where I, I, How did we meet, Lloyd? Do you remember Oh, good that? question. Um, I'm sure it was at some political gathering somewhere, but uh... I'm sure it was. And and as we were looking at what we're doing with our country, I, you know, when I first got elected to the Missouri State Legislature, I tried to just make it my job to be quiet and make everybody happy. <laughs> but it was, um, that lasted about a week, I'm, I'm guessing. <laughs> I didn't even get through the freshman orientation. Yeah, I, I didn't. Yeah, I would bet that. <laughs> But I, at least I started off with noble motives. Yeah. But where I really got the national attention was when I made a comment about the importance of children eating meals with their families instead of in an institutionalized setting. And it, it really didn't need to go that sour, but people who want bigger government cannot understand why we would call out people who are trying to grow it bigger. So... 
anyway, I want to talk about you for a minute because what um, I was doing a little research, and one of your most easy to find in the Google articles is headlined, A Successful St. Louis Area Libertarian Caucus Meeting. <laughs> and this, That's kind of ancient, I'm afraid. It's from <laughs> 2008, and uh, it says, Libertarians from several eastern counties and farther afield kicked off the 2008 election season on February 23rd, gathering in St. Louis which is very nice, and longtime Missouri Libertarian and St. Louis radio talker Lloyd Sloan served as the master of ceremonies. Introducing this, this I did do, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, they, they were kind enough to ask me to do that, and I did have ties with the party going back, you know, 20 years prior, maybe. But uh, they, we've, I've always kept in touch with them. I have sympathies for sure, and I'll throw them a vote once in a while. I, I do throw third parties quite a few votes, either Constitution or Libertarian, you know, uh, for sure. But uh, so they then, were, yeah, the I next, did MC that event for them, yes. <clears throat> thank you. Well, then the next article says, Lloyd Sloan, Republican candidate for Missouri River Township Committee. <laughs> Correct. Yeah. I'm a Republican <laughs> now. Uh, I don't know how, I don't know if I'm a Roy Blunt Republican. I was a Ron Paul Republican. That's a fair statement. And, uh, you know, but I, I believe that at this point, the Republican Party may be our best shot. If you can talk politics like that, you know, it's it, it's probably our best shot to try and take that over. I think the Republican Party is now weak. I think it's floundering. I think it's looking for ideas. They may not know they're looking, but we know it. Um, and, frankly, I'm willing to take two whacks at them. My strategy has always been, and, you know, this is hardcore politics, but... Uh, I'm not a big fan of Roy Blunt, so I'll use him as example. He's a pro-TARP guy. Um, <clears throat> I think he's weak on many issues. He's a big government Republican, and he's part of the faction that I would say we need to take over and remove. And so what do you do? You try and beat him in the primary, if you can. It's very hard to do. He has a lot of money and resources. And if you can't beat him in the primary, then you take him out in the general election. And that would be my strategy, and uh, I realize that doesn't make me the most loyal elephant around, but I do generally work within the Republican Party, and I, you know, I wish the party well. I just don't wish the big government Republicans well at all. I want them right. To so, let me ask you: Were you successful at becoming a Republican committee man? Oh no, I got, I got, uh, I got trounced. Like Roy Blunt actually came out against me. He endorsed my opponent in that race, which was very flattering to me. Shocking so, that a U.S. senator would even notice a local township committee man race. Uh-huh. I took it as a badge of honor, I'll tell you that. <laughs> wow, he's, he's he's paying attention to this race. He, he must really be, be a little bit nervous about me. That's kind of nice to know. Of course. <laughs> so, yeah, but yeah, I, the good news was the Republican Party is definitely changing. I got trounced in my race, but in lots of races around the state, I think the Republican Party is getting better. And uh, <clears throat> what I would call Ron Paul type people, uh, we we very successful. I think uh, we consider ourselves to have won what nine out of eleven races, something like that, uh, in this in this recent go run. So that's just in St. Louis County. Um, St. Charles County very effective. Uh, Ron, Ron Paul had forty seven percent of delegates at the state convention, Republican state convention. But you know, I don't want to. One thing I don't want to do is bog down in. 
too much party politics because I've been through this before. I don't know. I think I'm older than you are. And I certainly remember the Reagan era, and I was definitely a Reagan Republican. And I had high hopes for the party, as we all did. And we got Reagan elected, and we thought, wow, we're riding high. And we celebrated. In fact, we still celebrate today the Reagan victories, thinking, wow, that was great. But the bottom line is, uh, despite Reagan's success, the government grew. The family is not stronger. We didn't end abortion. You know, we, we won the Cold War. Little good it did us. Our military budget's larger now than it was then. So there's a lot of problems. We have to realize that it's not about parties. It's about issues. And when we get past that, then we can fix the Republican Party, but frankly, we should fix the Democrat Party, too. I mean, I don't work in the Democrat Party, but I sure wish somebody was pushing these same issues. Right. So where are the Ron Paul people going to go now with their support now that Ron Paul is out of office? Oh, I think Rand Paul probably is going to be on their short list. You can the read. man who endorsed Mitt Romney? Yeah, yeah, such is politics, right? Well, <laughs> he, kind of, he endorsed him in order, to, in my opinion, he endorsed him in order to speak at the convention, and that's just part of the price tag to be able to speak. But, uh, you know, he also criticized Romney several times. I don't worry about that as much as, you know, what ideas is he going to run on when the time comes. Rand is certainly getting a lot of name recognition. Rand has some advantages over his dad and some disadvantages. And, you know, I, I haven't made up my mind yet is what I would tell you. I have an open mind about it. I'm looking at Rand. Uh, I would have looked at the Ted Cruz. I like Cruz a lot down in Texas, but he turns to be born in Canada, so he's off, he's off the list, right? Too bad he wasn't born in Kenya. Maybe we could put him back on the list. I mean, <laughs> that's a joke. That's a joke. I am no, no, not a birther. I, I I, I'm, not, I'm not actually a birther, but I do think I I thought it was inexcusable that Barack Obama would wait that long to release a birth certificate. He knows, and the then rap. a fraudulent one at that. <laughs> That's a different issue, but it's. I mean, this is something you should. I have to show a birth certificate now to get my driver's license renewed in this state, and this man can't show it to become president. This is ridiculous. So, yeah, I was not happy about that aspect of it, but, you know, the, the truth is Cruz is born in Canada, so he's off that list. I like, um, I think uh, Walker in Wisconsin ought to get a look. I like Michelle Bachman still. I don't think she's presidential, though. There's, there's, And there's tons of names we haven't even heard of, so I, I would ask people to keep an open mind. But I'm sure Rand Paul will be on the short list, and he is, his publicity is great. He doesn't. I prefer his stand on Israel to his father's. I think he is a little bit more moderate in that area, and I think that's going to serve him well long-term, not necessarily attacking his father for his position, but I do think his father had a tendency to be more extreme on issues, and unnecessarily so at times. So just moderate those positions some, and you can you can still make your same point. Uh, you know, I was not a hawk. I am not a hawk today. I opposed the, the Iraq war. I was okay with going into Afghanistan, but not Iraq. I thought that was a huge mistake that Bush did from day one. So I wasn't, you know, Johnny come lately to this. And, uh, you know, we do have to change our foreign policy in America. I agree with that. But uh, we don't have to change it and desert Israel. <laughs> we don't have to do that, right? So Right. Uh, so yeah. let me ask you this. What are you expecting to see to make our country turn around. Is our country going to turn around? Are you optimistic? Oh, yeah. Yeah, we're going to turn around. Yeah, I, I have faith in the country. I have faith in the American people. 
um, stems from a faith in God Almighty, right? So, you know, and I, I think uh, we will turn it around, but I don't think it will be painless anymore. I do believe that we are, you know, the painless solutions are probably behind us. Reagan might have given us painless solutions, certainly less painful. And Bush had a chance, too, to do it. I mean, he had a Republican Congress, even, and, and failed to shrink the government. And what What is the most important thing you could do? We're talking about pro-family issues, foreign policy issues, all this stuff. But to me, the most important problem is an out-of-control federal government. The debts, the spending, the welfare state is creating is destroying the family. Stuff is all interrelated. My goodness, our, is it not clear that this government is corrupt as it can be? I mean, from the recent news that we're seeing. So I, I think that's the main objective is to get that national government, that federal government under control again, back under constitutional limitations. That well, was the I, issue. Yeah, go ahead. Mm-hmm. Right. That is the constitutional limitations is the whole story in one nutshell. Going back to the Obama citizenship issue even, I have a different spin on it than you're going to hear anywhere else, but it it speaks to the breakup of the home and how little we disregard family anymore. We, you know, the, the it really didn't even matter if he's born in Kenya or Hawaii because to be a natural-born citizen means both of your parents need to be U.S. citizens. And at the time of his birth, his parents were married. He had a mother and a father. And there's no question, his mother was a an American citizen his father was not an American citizen so that was the end of the story right there the reason there's controversy over it is because people coming out of public school today have very little education on what even our US Constitution is and they're so unaware and uninformed that they think that we're talking about is he a citizen today. No, the question isn't, is is he regarded as a citizen? The question is, is he a natural-born citizen? Because that's the requirement to hold that office. And the answer is clearly no, he wasn't a natural-born citizen because his parents were not both citizens. So now you've got my topic. And I think the reason people don't understand it is because we're having all those anchor babies where one Mexican pregnant mother can come to the United States, give birth to a baby, and then through some mysterious interpretation of the 14th Amendment, people are like, oh, that's got to be a U.S. citizen now. No. (laughs) I think, what do you think about how they've made anchor babies into U.S. citizens? I mean, that would be my reading of the 14th Amendment. I think it says uh, any person born or naturalized in the United States and subject to the jurisdiction thereof is a citizen. Yet they um, couldn't have imagined that people were – what they meant, I'm sure, when they wrote it, is people immigrating legally first to America and then giving birth to a baby in a home where they established their residency, not people who are running across the border and hoping that their labor will last long enough to <laughs> validate the baby. At, at the time the 14th Amendment is written, the U.S. has no immigration the first U.S. immigration laws occur, I believe, 1880s against the Chinese. So we're pretty wide open on this stuff. Now, you do have to be in a state. I mean, because a citizen of the United States, born in the United States, means one of the states, typically. 
I'm not sure about territories there and whether or not that was included. Uh, that I would back off. But the main reason for the 14th Amendment was to include freed Negro slaves. And if you go back to the Dred Scott decision, the Supreme Court inappropriately had basically ruled out, it had, had put a racial criteria on citizenship that's not in the Constitution at all. In fact, the founders were very careful not to put that in there. And so they read it in, and the 14th Amendment primarily is designed to correct that and include all those slaves, all those freed Negroes, because they were born in the United States. Were their parents citizens of the United States? Nope. Nope, because they were slaves. So, you know, <laughs> um, also I would mention, I mean, I'm not going to, I don't want to get into it too much. I thought this, the main thing I liked about the birther controversy was that people actually had to pick up the Constitution and read it again, which is very healthy. And so I'm always for that. I mean, at least we had to look up natural-born citizen and try and figure out what does it mean. I will tell you there was an American president, Chester Arthur, so check him out. Um, his his father was Irish. And so that and, well, he's elected 1880, I think. Um, no, he's not. He's elected vice president. He takes over because what's-his-name was shot. Garfield was shot. And But nevertheless, he met the qualifications as far as they were concerned for president. His father was Irish. Well, and ultimately, the, the I think what you and I have observed in the real world today is whatever people handle and tolerate is what we're accepting yes. instead of actually going back to what the law says. There, there are laws that we're inventing in our heads all the time. In fact, the bureaucratic branches of government seem to be capable of frequently coming up with new ideas and then they, they're they given the constitutional, not constitutional authority, but the Congress, if they say you guys can do whatever you want, then they're taking latitude that does not rightfully belong to them. Yeah, I should probably, uh, you know, several issues here and they get very deep, but, uh, and I don't know where to start with people, but I generally observe and I've known this since high school, U.S. Constitution's a mess. Okay, we're not really following this. Not we're not following what the original intent was. We're not even following the clear meaning of the words. Um, if the Constitution means anything, it means that the national government, the federal government, and Congress are limited, and they only have limited powers. Those powers are listed there. Now, I mean, we can stretch it some and say, okay, well, they didn't say they could build forts. Well, they can build forts because they can do armies, and so go ahead and build a fort because that's kind of necessary to have an army. These are reasonable stretches. But I, during the Obamacare hearing, the, the question that came up that I remember the Solicitor General of the United States, when he was being questioned, could not answer this. And I believe it was Justice Kennedy even that asked him. But he said, you know, if the federal government can force everybody to buy health insurance, can you tell me what they cannot do? Can you give me an example of something that the federal government can't do? And he had no answer to that question. Ding, ding, ding. There ought to be whistles and bells going off in every American's mind. That means an unlimited government, people. That means the Constitution is no longer in effect. You have to be able to say what limits the federal government or your Constitution is, is scrapped. It's history. And that's bottom line. And the left, when I say the left, I mean, whatever, you know, the progressives, the big government people, they truly recognize no limitation anymore on this on this national government. That ain't good. The, the problem for our side 
Really? Because we wanted to stop Obamacare, and we put all our eggs in one Supreme Court basket and came out empty. But the hard question for our side, which they have for us, is, okay, you think Obamacare is unconstitutional. What about Social Security? What about Medicare? Can you give me a rule that makes Obamacare unconstitutional and not these other programs? And we didn't have an answer. You're, no kidding. I mean, we're we're all looking at Obamacare coming right in our faces, and bottom line is that the insurance industry and the medical industry have wanted this to happen, and and where and the lobbyists are really running the show in Washington D.C. and in the state government, and when they put money forth or have a chance to make money off of a project, then there's no free market reason that they shouldn't be able to push for it. But you hope that the legislators would balance and temper some of their desire to make more. It really is a redistribution of the wealth. Um, and it's redistribution. Am I wrong? Go ahead. Straight no, 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 no. I, I, you're not wrong. I, I would... I paint with a broad brushstroke here of 100 years, okay? And what we okay. what we embarked on since the progressive era begins, Woodrow Wilson, to some extent Teddy Roosevelt, mass, a, a large expansion of the federal government and their role. Uh, you have income tax, of course, the Federal Reserve Act early on, but then, you know, extensions into commerce, all these other extensions, agriculture. You get to the New Deal, but it's been a long process of getting most Americans dependent on the federal government or on government in some way or another. You can see the public schools that way if you want as well. But, you know, there's a big difference between if if we were to educate our kids in schools that we pay for, like we go to the grocery store. You know, we don't go to the grocery store, government grocery store. We, we, could have, we could have, just because some people are poor and can't afford education, we set up public schools. But we don't set up free food. We don't let the government run the, the restaurants and the grocery stores just because some people are poor. We either target the poor and give them a special subsidy, which is like a food stamp, fine, okay, I understand that. But but it's not an excuse for a total government takeover is what I'm saying. With Social Security, Medicare, all these other programs, you realize the federal government in the United States produces close to $80 million checks a month that they send out to people. That's a huge issue. That's a massive number of people that you can't just cut them off. You can't just say, well, we're going to abolish this tomorrow. No, you're not. That's not realistic. How did we get to this point where yeah. we are, we're all sending money to Washington and they're sending it back to us and we act like that's a good thing? You know, it is a, every time that they run into a budget crisis, it, you can guarantee with Barack Obama, he's going to threaten Social Security. Say, well, if we do that, if we cut that, oh my goodness, I can't pay Social Security. We are scaring the elderly every time we do this. And you have given huge power. That's their money. I'm not going to say it's not. I mean, they paid in. That's the theory. So we need to make good on a debt. I'm not saying we don't. But I am saying we've got to find a way to break off this dependency on the government. And... uh I would advocate that we cut the taxes. I mean, you want to know my practical solution. Tired of Republican approaches. I want to cut those taxes bottom up. I would abolish those income tax under $100,000 in income. 
And so the vast majority of the American people would be looking at IRS. Um, and then I would start cutting the benefits top down. So if you're a millionaire, you're not going to get a FEMA payment, okay? <laughs> Sorry, you should have taken care of yourself. you got the money to do it. Why are you coming to me for a handout? That's going to be the attitude. And you take away that corporate welfare and you take away all the welfare payments to, to the wealthy, so to speak, start bracketing that down, eventually you cross over. So eventually, you know, maybe you get to the point where people under $300,000 aren't paying any taxes and people above $200,000 aren't getting any benefits at all. And so you keep, you keep moving those numbers until we finally get our middle class back in America. And that's our base. I mean, the base of the small government people is a self-reliant, family-oriented middle class, right? That well, is free of that is free of government, independent of government. They are self-reliant. They're like the founders. They're like the frontiers. I mean, that's what America is about, and we've lost that. There's virtually no one left in America that isn't either paying too much taxes in or getting freebies coming back the other way. We have got to get off that. Lloyd, how did it get to be that Social Security started off nobly as a retirement? And and when I was, you and I, by the way, we're not that much different in age because I looked you up on the Internet. We're two years apart. <laughs> well, I, I'm not going to say. I don't, I, I'm going to stop exploring right there. And, you know. <laughs> but here's my I'm point. I'm assuming that uh, you're 37 and I'm 39 is what I'm going to say. There you go. Hey, um, here's the question. When we were younger, we always equated Social Security with retirement. And that was basically the concept is when you retire, then you get Social Security. What's destroying it quicker than anything is the disability portion. And there are young people who are in their early 20s who are, Finding out, whoa, if I can just get on disability, that is better than welfare. They're rating the Social Security fund over it, and that's what is draining it quicker than anything because it was assumed early on that we've relaxed the definition of disability, and now there are people who claim to be, have all, I don't want to name on a radio show all the, very light things people are claiming because then everybody who has those will get mad at us. <laughs> but, for example, there's one lady, um, young lady, is married, has uh, no children, and years ago, just going back to the concept of what is a home, what is a family, it used to be when a husband and wife got married that there was an assumption that the man would take a wife when he could afford to support a wife. And there's not a thing wrong with that concept, except for today. We Now this young lady um, would like to go on disability for what I, I will tell you, it's not not anything that is like, in, you know, you can't function. It's just uncomfortable and and our i don't blame the people who take advantage of the services i blame the elected officials who lowered the bar so low that anybody could so i said why would she go on disability when can't she live on her husband's income i mean this is the strange and bizarre end because it used to be that women would have an expectation that their husbands would take care of them and if he can't then 
it's still the responsibility of family members around her to do what they can to take care of her. I'm aghast at how people turn to government first. It used to be turning to government was an act of despair. It was the last resort, not the first resort. It was what you did when all other measures failed. When you have no family, you have no church, you have no community, and you're utterly destitute at the bottom. Then you turn to government. No more. Now it's the first thing you do, and people who actually have very wealthy families and families who could provide for them and take and take them in and meet their needs and they're like why would i want to bother my family with having to support me when the government will do it yeah i mean it's partly part of the overall breakdown in a family which has i mean you see symptoms of this all over in fact i I think we even cross the threshold where there's actually more there's more uh uh single you know, households than there are married households. And uh, that's just unprecedented in American history. We have certainly done a number on this and not easy solutions to it. I mean, I wish I had solutions to that one because I think part of it's divorce, there's illegitimacy, and there's abortion all wrapped up in this. You've got issues with feminism as well that certainly did a number, you know, like a watermelon through a snake through the society. And it has left huge impacts and stuff that are, you know, good luck because uh, people, you know, in fact, that's so big a topic, I almost want to go back to Social Security for a second because, um, (laughs) well, because that one I know how to solve. You know, you're asking me how to solve these family issues and feminism and all. And um, I think, I mean, I'll give you a quick take on feminism, which is women have the same rights as men, okay? To me, that's all. It was all phony. And uh, I mean, I used to get in trouble with the feminists because I would ask them when I'm debating them, saying, you know, can you please name me a single right in America that men have and women don't? Because I will gladly grant it. Okay? And they can't name anything, and they get really flustered because it has, ladies, it has nothing to do with equal rights. Feminism is about socialism. I never met a feminist who wasn't a socialist. All right? They they constantly push for big government solutions. They are an arm. They're kind of like the environmental movement. I'm not opposed to protecting the environment, but the environmental movement is constantly used as big government solutions. You know, never private property solutions, never small government solutions. Always just, they're not interested in those solutions. We are feminists. If you give the feminists a small government solution, they ain't interested. Um, It's about protecting, you know, and, and being an arm of that massive socialist movement, you know, that's been going on for 100 years. In fact, I used to say, feminism is socialism at menopause. That was the, uh, <laughs> that, that is the best way to understand feminism, and it always got me in trouble, frankly. So. <laughs> well, let me tell you what it was like being in the legislature. The women used to like doing things, fun things together, and like going to the Four Seasons spa down at uh, Lake of the Ozarks, and, and we do little dinners with the women judges, would invite the women legislators over. The men never did men things, or the women would be pounding the doors down to get in. But women didn't see the hypocrisy between, you know, what their double standard that it's okay for women to do things just for women, but it is not okay for men to do things just for men. That would be sexist. Well, and there's a reason I'll, why they call it feminism and not egalitarianism. 
you know, I mean, if, if he was really about equality, he would call it egalitarianism or something like that, or sexual equality, names like this. When you call it feminism, it's designed to help the interests of women. That's fine. But let's not pretend that it's just about equal rights. It's really not the agenda. Um, that's how they sell it, and they're still very good at selling it. Very good at it. Um, I mean, we're all afraid of discussing it, really. That's the truth in the society. And, and, you know, the answer is not necessarily abolish feminism and we'll get the families back. I believe part of, this will sound strange to people, but part of getting the family back is simply shrinking the government again. It, the family will naturally come back. That's one of the oldest, you know, most traditional institutions in humanity. The families were there in every society. It didn't matter if they were democracies. It's in ancient Rome. It's 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 in the Soviet Union. Okay, the family has has very little to do, you know, with small political differences. It has to do with something fundamental. And the one thing that's killing the family to me is that the government took over its role. So you're right. We don't turn to the family for these solutions. We turn to government over and over again. That is clearly part of a feminist agenda. No doubt right. about it. It was it was pretty lonely there in the Capitol. I had uh, eight years of the, out of 163 representatives, only 34 were women, and then out of the 34 women, only nine were Republican women. And out of the nine Republican, only seven were conservative Republican women who believed in life. <laughs> so we didn't, and one of the seven was me. So I, I had, I had few friends, and I didn't get to hang around with the men too much because I didn't <laughs> smoke cigars and play poker, and I didn't want the, they, they didn't want their wives to think they're having an affair or anything. So yeah, it really was a little awkward. I, I didn't really feel like a lot of women would get it because if a women's issue came up and emerged on the bill on the house floor as a bill it it almost always would pass carte blanche because you know if it's forced the single mothers we always will vote yes and this yep. was both democrats and republicans because that would be politically incorrect if it, it, and so i guess the sad part is that we made bad decisions on some bills because people had this stigma and it really there was a glimmer of hope when the Tea Party movement emerged and people started saying what are we doing the taxes are too much and we're fed up and we don't like this and now you look at the Tea Party movement today and it's just about dead is it dead um well it's dormant <laughs> You know, what happened? Not. How did it self-destruct? That's, that is a $25,000 question. You're asking definitely the right question. Uh, step back a little bit and say, I'm not sure the Tea Party movement really came to Missouri. So we need to take a good hard look as to why it missed this state. That's one of the other questions I would ask. But in other states, yeah, the Tea Party, it kicked out establishment Republicans, no doubt about it. And, and there's there's former senators and former congressmen all over because the Tea Party did a number on them, just not in Missouri. What happened to it? It was formed, in my opinion, because of the TARP issue. The Bush bailout, probably one of the most important issues of the last 10 years, and the Tea Party forms over that because the Republicans, uh, I won't say all Republicans, but it divided the party, and Bush clearly led what was a betrayal of free market principles. Exactly the wrong answer to that disaster was to do that bailout. I'm convinced of that to this day, and that's what forms Tea Parties. 
And we're going great guns at that point. You go from uh, 2008 and early 2009 when it forms to roughly 2010. What sidetracked it, there's several things going on, but what really sidetracked it as an issue was Obamacare. And we switched the priority within the Tea Parties from the TARP issue to the Obamacare issue, trying to stop it. Now, once you do that, I'm certainly not in favor of Obamacare any more than anybody else, but when you change that strategy, you make it a partisan organization. Because within the Republican Party, the TARP issue was divisive. It actually was a good way to tell good Republicans from bad Republicans, and it still is. I will never support a pro-TARP Republican, period. And you can use that as one of the most solid tests you'll ever find to tell good from bad. However, your, mm-hmm. oh, absolutely, that's my litmus test to this day. The, the problem with it is it's growing stale. I mean, TARP is now five years old, and, you know, that's too old. You know, it's not a to people, it's not a current issue, and you need a current issue more than a, a historic one. And that's also part of the problem. Uh, at any rate, Obamacare was pretty, I mean, Every Republican opposed Obamacare. There's no division in the party, and every Democrat ended up supporting it. So that just that just turns the Tea Party into an arm of the Republican Party. It loses its independence. What's amazing is that we could go from 2010 victories in the Republican Party, which were all considered Tea Party victories. I mean, they came out of nowhere, shocked the country. What the heck just happened? I mean, after Obama gets elected, and now all of a sudden, bang, the Democrats lose the House. You know, that was a Tea Party tidal wave that hit. And then we go from there to putting Mitt Romney as the nominee, and he's pro-TARP? Are you kidding me? So, you know, obviously it's dormant at best. I don't know, I'm not going to call it dead yet, because I believe those sentiments are still out there. But I honestly believe that if the Republican Party is going to get wise, it has to realize 40% of this country are independent voters. They are not they are not donkeys, they are not elephants. They really don't even like both these parties. They see hypocrisy in both and they don't like it. Um they do switch back and forth between them at times, that's what's going on, and both parties buy for that vote. But if we do a Tea Party again, it really needs to more consciously, you know, focus on um independent type issues as opposed to just being partisan Republican issues. That's not that's my theory in it anyway. So. Well and the other thing Right. I, I think too with TARP most people were not benefiting directly from it, so it was easier to oppose it. With Obamacare, people are thinking about what about my neighbor? What if he gets hurt? Wouldn't that be nice if we had free medical care for everybody? And people largely didn't even understand what Obamacare was. They thought it was free medical insurance for everybody. Exactly. And, <laughs> I mean, that that's we didn't do a very good job of explaining it, and the public didn't do a very good job of becoming informed. They are going to wake up real quick with the smelling salt that's coming when they renew their medical insurance policies next year. And that's just part of, you know, what are you going to say then? Well, too bad, Congress, the people who passed it in Congress are leaving every year. So let me tell you, here's, we're headed, speaking of partisanship, we're headed into the last week of, this is the last week of the legislative session in Missouri. And it always amazed me, all the gestures and gamesmanship and all that 
people stomping out of rooms and all the high emotions and egos going on. A lot of this is for show. It, it really, first of all, don't you think we already have enough laws in Missouri that if we didn't pass any more, that should be enough to do it? I mean, I haven't counted them, but. <laughs> well, <laughs> but, the problem you know, is. I would be amazed that, uh, you know, yeah, I, w- I would just soon get rid of some and then keep adding on. I think uh, maybe a little housekeeping is in order at some point. Um, well, uh, the. the, the the main issue I saw in Missouri legislature this session, and of course I'm disappointed because it's typical of conservatives and Republicans. They really don't have much of an agenda that they push, okay? They spend most of the time trying to stop the other guy. Even on Obamacare, that's why we lose. It's because we don't we don't have a solution to the mess that health care is in in America. We, our, our idea is, well, it's fine. You know, I got mine. Don't worry about anybody else. That's how we come across and so we figure, well, we get victory if we stop Obamacare. And that's true in the Missouri legislature today. It's like, well, we don't have to do anything. If we stop Nixon, we're good. And that's really how we think in uh, in conservative circles. Um, we need to quit thinking that way. We need to get more aggressive, shrink the government. And we're focused on trying to stop Common Core, and we're focused on trying to uh, go after Nixon. I mean, he broke the law with his, uh, with his sharing of that uh, concealed carry database with federal authorities that was quite against the law in Missouri to do that. So you have a scandal you can go after him on. But again, does that really, does that solve the problem of big government in the United States or the constitutional issues we raise? Um, Well, I remember when I got my concealed, when I took the class for the concealed weapon permit and the instructor said at the time, you could have them put that on your driver's license or you could have a separate card for your concealed weapon permit. So he advised us, don't put it on your driver's license because you don't want to have to go flashing that around Walmart and have people look at you cockeyed like you've got a gun or something. Well, that that was funny because, you know, here he was making the case you don't want people to think you have a gun. And I said to him, yeah, but I don't want people to think I don't have a gun. <laughs> and to right. this day, just because it's my right, I, I if, unless I'm late for a flight, I will use my concealed weapon permit as my as my identification because I'm trying to push back. I don't think they should ever intimidate law-abiding citizens who are doing the right thing. Now, the question of did Jay Nixon authorize our bureaucracy to give information to the federal government about who has guns, I mean, can you explain where that came from and how much truth there is to it? Um. Well, I mean, that's the question. I don't know the answer to that question. I know they did it. I know that he was. there's a letter out there that's a smoking gun that he got from, what, Napolitano, thanking him for doing it. So he had to have been aware that it was being done. Uh, whether or not he approved it beforehand, uh, he certainly was aware that it was done and, and it, it was illegal. Um, that sounds pretty bad to me. It's, I, you know, <laughs> that's... Yeah. As to where it goes from there, I don't know. I mean, I think it's a serious issue because if you get a. I don't know what the point is of having any laws if we don't follow the ones we've got. That doesn't make a whole lot of sense to me. So you know, that would right. be a starting point. Well, I mean, we, uh, 
the Constitution of the United States is far more important than any of these other issues to me. Okay? And I, I want to, you know, I want to at least give you a solution to what I think is the constitutional problem. I mean, we left it at a mess and then, you know, didn't fix it. Mm-hmm. Um, I believe there are solutions to the constitutional problem as well. And it, it's not just about politics and electing the right people. We have a problem in the Constitution itself. We don't talk about it much. There's several, actually. But we've had one from day one. There is a natural tendency in the Constitution to send all these issues up to the Supreme Court. We do it We do it all the time today. Mm-hmm. So it's about Roe v. Wade or it's about Obamacare. And, and you know, well, we, we need to, you know, let the Supreme Court decide this. That's not what the founders intended, and it's it's a flaw to think that the federal government should be the final authority as to whether or not they themselves broke the Constitution. Uh, that's not going to have a happy ending. So how do you fix this problem? There is one proposal, and it passed the Missouri legislature. I was aghast at it uh, this past session on nullification. Now, that's an old doctrine. It's essentially, it's most mature in John C. Calhoun where he believed that a single state had the authority to nullify a federal law that it thought was unconstitutional. Of course, you do that, and you will break the union apart. You will you will leave us with 50 constitutions instead of one, and that's the problem with that doctrine. And it's, it's, it's why the founders got off the Articles of Confederation. So if we, can't, if we can't let the federal government be the final word, and we can't let a single state do it, we got an issue here. And Madison actually came up with an idea in the 1830s, and it's a great idea, to have a constitutional amendment and let a majority of states repeal an act of Congress. And if we do that, we wouldn't have Obamacare to worry about. We wouldn't have gone to the Supreme Court. We'd have just had 26 states representing a majority of American people say no. So this is... This is Madison's missing amendment. Yeah, I call it Madison's Lost Amendment. And uh, it's also sometimes called State Repeal Amendment, which may be a better name than, you know, giving it to Madison entirely. But, um, yeah, so that why idea. Is, why, what, ha- what happened to Madison that he couldn't get a majority of states to go along with that? He died the next year. That will put an end to a lot of projects. Well, yeah, I mean, and, and nobody was really interested in his idea at the time because, frankly, the guy that he's proposing this to is John C. Calhoun. And Calhoun only wants to do what he's doing to protect slave states, and he knows the slave states will never be a majority. So, in the sense, Madison's idea applies more to us today. I mean, what is our problem today? Our problem is an out-of-control federal government. That wasn't the problem that John C. Calhoun faced. He, his, he, I mean, he had a high tariff he had to deal with, so he can, if you consider that out of control, then I guess he might call it that. But he didn't have this massive federal government that was just taking over everything. He was trying to protect slavery interests, mainly. And so he didn't have any interest in Madison's idea. The progressives have never had an interest in ideas like this. They want, yes, centralized, no, they want centralized power. Right. If Madison's amendment had passed, do you think we could have avoided the Civil War? Uh, you know, I've been asked that before. It's an interesting question. I doubt it. You know, Civil War has slightly different causes. Uh, the way to avoid the Civil War is to have a way to to um, 
stop the Supreme Court, because I believe it was the Dred Scott decision ultimately that forced that civil war. Once they made that decision in Dred Scott, um, <clears throat> Lincoln, of course, said he wasn't going to go along with it. And then once Lincoln says that, then the South doesn't see that they have much alternative than to secede, and that drives all the, the, the forces that plunge you into war. Uh, trying to avoid the Civil War is not going to be easy to do. I don't think it constitutes. I mean, if the South would have agreed to abolish slavery, that certainly would have done it because that's what the whole beef was about, but they're not going to do that. I mean, they'd rather fight a war than do that. I agree. So, and and also, if the Congress had wanted to pass a law saying that uh, slaves will be um, no longer um, people born from this point forward, will be free, and then through the process of attrition, which would have been much more gentle and delicate, it would have, there were, I understand there were plans in place that could have gently gone, made slavery go away within 10 or 20 years. And there was, it was sad, really sad that all those people, half a million or so, had to die, and these are our own people. These are our ancestors who were wiped out, and it, it still makes me sad that we had to fight a war for it when we could have. We'd like to think that more calm heads could prevail. Um, Civil War is nothing to joke about. I hope this we're in the 150th anniversary of it. I think people need to remember that history before they talk loosely about this. It's the bloodiest war this country ever had. And when it's when it's all said and done, you know what what did you fight over? Uh, you know I don't think anybody Jefferson Davis or Lincoln had any idea they were going to kill that many people when they started. And I you know these are we need to find peaceful ways to solve our own problems. I mean you asked me when we started this, am I optimistic for the country? Of course I am, because and the Civil War is a good reason to be optimistic. That was that was the worst period in our history, and we came through it. And for us to compare. What we face today to what uh, Lincoln and uh, Jeff Davis faced and the, what the country faced with the Civil War, that's ridiculous. I mean, that's kind of how I feel when blacks will sometimes say, you know, their situation is worse than slavery. And I think, I mean, their situation isn't great. I'm not going to tell them it is. But it, it certainly is not worse than slavery. That's an insult, right. to, that's an insult to the people who lived through that slavery. Absolutely. My my father was born in 1927, and he told me, he grew up in Detroit, Michigan, and he remembers a time when he was an adolescent when he felt like our country was going to fall to communism. And in my whole life, I've never really thought about what if we fall to I mean, I wasn't worried about The point is there are other times when bad bad Absolutely. moments have happened. Can you tell me, you just taught a class on the 5,000 leap. What was the 5,000-year leap all about? <laughs> um, it's a book by Cleon uh, uh, Skousen. Um, it's a little bit dated now. I think it's about 30, 30 years old at least back in the 80s. Um, the 5,000-year leap title comes from what he believes was the, the founding of America was this great Great leap forward, a 5,000 year leap forward in world history. And so the book is basically, and then it contains what he claims are 28 principles that, uh, that were in the founding of America. And so we just kind of studied that book and added our own little parts and all. I, I, 
what's good and what I would tell people, not necessarily that book, although any book is good, and this certainly serves the purpose as well, but we need to get back to the wisdom of the founders. We need to think about them more in this in these terms and read what they had to say um, and reinvigorate America. What did Lincoln call it? A new birth of freedom. You know, government of the people, by the people, for the people, shall not perish, you know. And and I would also say that in 1913 was another dark time in American history, and you know, and there there have been, and you know, if if somebody had if they had not come up with the uh, horrible amendments back then, the 16th and the 17th, and the uh, start trying to start the income tax, if they came up with that idea today, I don't know if it would have gone, but. They passed these bad laws setting up the Federal Reserve and trying to, I mean, when you think about how evil could people be that they were trying to come up with a bad plan that would devastate our country and our economy ultimately, and that those seeds were sown back then. I, I remember when Roy Blunt, since you brought up Roy Blunt, I have to tell you one Roy Blunt story. He came to speak to the House of Representatives in a private caucus meeting. Not not the Democrats, but just the Republicans were invited. And that was where he announced to us that he was running for U.S. Senate. And at the time, that was actually a brilliant strategy for him to first go to the members of the Republican caucus because they are in all parts of the state, and if he could get them on his bandwagon, that would be very helpful. But what really didn't impress me was he said, the reason I'm running is because I know I can raise $20 million. And I can get at least 9 or $10 million from in the state and another 9 or $10 million from out of the state. And you know what, that is the worst reason, sorry to yell in your ear, but that is the worst reason. I don't understand. Well, I'll bet you all the political consultants were applauding that line. Oh, yeah. (laughs) So after he was done with his remarks to us, he opened up the floor for questions. So I was the first one to raise my hand, and I said to him, uh, Roy Blunt, you are running for you're currently in Congress, okay, and and you're running for U.S. Senate. And at the time we had, uh, I believe Claire McCaskill had already won the Senate seat. Um, and so, and she was a Democrat. I said, Missouri's run by Republicans. If we had not passed the 17th Amendment, then it we wouldn't have a Democrat representing our state in the U.S. Congress right now. If you were elected to the U.S. Senate, would you work to repeal the 17th Amendment, which stripped all of us state legislators of our right to select who will be the next senator? And this is, you got to see this though, Lloyd, I'm in a room full of the representatives who would have been the ones making that decision. And he said, absolutely not. He thinks the 17th Amendment is a great idea. <laughs> oh, yeah, I'm sure he would. Yeah, yeah so that, that that wasn't the answer I was looking for. And yeah, I, mean, I agree that the 17th Amendment changed the logic of the system. There's no doubt that it did. And that was one of the, the founders when they set up the framework 
they see the the election of senators from the states as a way for states to check the federal government. Uh, they also saw the Electoral College that way, too. Believe it or not, we vote for president, but technically we only vote for president because the Missouri legislature allows us to do so. Uh, they are the ones that control the presidential electors, and we could technically do it a different way. We just don't, historically. But um, it, it just evolved that way. We have lost any checks that the states have on the feds. And if we don't get those checks back, then the feds are going to do what they're doing. They're going to gobble up everything. You know, They're going to gobble up the states. And that's an inevitable process. If I were going to redo the 17th Amendment, I wouldn't just repeal it. I think I would go back to the way it was done under the Articles of Confederation. And what I would do is give – I don't really care how many senators a state wants to send. I might limit them to like five. So you can send however many senators you want to send. But the Senate would be one vote per state, period. So your senators would get – and the senators would be paid by the state and chosen by the state, totally controlled by the state. They could be recalled at any time and send, and send new ones if you want to send them. But the voting in the Senate, there'd be 50 votes, 26 you need. And I would I would do that kind of a radical change that would make it far more representative of the states than it ever has been. That's still not enough, okay? I'm just telling you. You could do that, but that's still not enough power to repeal bad federal laws. You need the same power of judicial, like similar to judicial review, in the hands of the states. That's what we're. That's what I'm trying to get with the Madison idea, so that the states would be able to look at any federal law and say, we don't like this part, we don't like this part, we don't like this part. It's gone. That's real power, okay? Like a judge has to knock it down. And I think only that can really give you the checks you're looking for. Uh, 17th Amendment definitely contributed to the problem. That's true. But getting rid of it, that's not enough to solve it. That doesn't follow. We were, we were already heading down this path even prior to the 17th Amendment, frankly. So it's not enough to fix it. Well, you have been most insightful, and I really appreciate your ideas. We only have a minute left. Do you want to say anything to summarize this, or do you have a website that you want to send us to? They, they certainly can reach me, um, LloydSloan.com, so that's one place. But I think um, I want to mention that I'll actually be speaking in St. Louis on this topic. I'd be remiss if I didn't mention this now. This Thursday, uh, to the St. Louis Tea Party, the topic is Constitutional Awakening, um, uh, can Madison's Lost Amendment Restore American Federalism? Uh, that's at 7 o'clock at uh, Helen Fitzgerald's. Uh, it's in South County in St. Louis near 44 in, in Lindbergh, uh, right right south of 44 on Lindbergh, and that's at 7 o'clock this Thursday. Sounds good. Well, thank you, Lloyd, for joining us. You are a pleasure and a delight. Please come back again sometime, and we'll revisit more on We'll, we'll solve it again. Thanks for having me. This is then another edition of Homefront on Missouri Grassroots Radio. I'm Cynthia Davis and hope you enjoyed our program. Please join us next week when we offer another infusion of truth, honesty, and solutions that will grow people bigger and shrink government smaller. Thank you for joining us. See you next week. It's the home.